The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in August 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Before today's guest first appeared on Broadway, he made appearances at Disneyland and Disney World, even in Japan, then made his Broadway debut in 1990 in Fiddler on the Roof. Between then and now, he's been in Chicago, the revival of Kiss Me Kate, The Light in the Piazza, the recent revival of A Chorus Line, and now is a director-choreographer of the new Broadway show, Title of Show. We welcome Michael Barras. Hi, Michael. Hi. It's my pleasure to be here. <laughs> well, tell us about Title of Show. Now, I've been explaining to our listeners all along that Title of Show is indeed the title of show, and that's that's the way it's written with brackets and lowercase title of show. And you are the director choreographer, the first time that I know of that you've been directing. It is. It's my debut as a director choreographer. It's my Broadway debut as a director choreographer. Um, ask any director I've ever worked with, they'll tell you I've been directing my whole career, but now I actually have the official title. Uh, title of show, the name of the show came from <clears throat> the application. It was a, The show was originally written as um, a submission to the inaugural season of the New York Musical Theater Festival. And when the guys were trying to come up with a name for the show, on the actual application form, blank number one is title of show. Which you mentioned the guys being Jeff... Uh, and, and Jeff and Hunter, Bowen is the composer, and lyricist, Hunter and Hunter Bell, the book writer. Yeah. This was, what, four years ago in 2004? Yeah, I mean, the, the, they started writing it about four and a half years ago, but the inaugural um, performance was at the New York Musical Theater Festival four years ago this year. Yeah, and the, so they decided the most interesting thing to call the show was actually the, the entry blank for title of show. And the rest is history. And it's one of those stories within the story type thing. It's their behind-the-scenes story about creating a show. So it's a show about the yeah, show. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a, actually quite a traditional piece of musical theater. It doesn't look like it on the surface, but the structure is quite traditional. And, in effect, the um, the basic integrity of the show is a traditional musical. Um, they They started to write this as an, a writing exercise initially. They wanted to see what they could create in three weeks with the deadline looming to try to get it um, submitted to this festival. And very quickly they realized the most interesting thing about trying to write a musical in three weeks was trying to write a musical in three weeks. It's a very classic structure. Many artists in many different art forms have explored the act of creating. So in that sense, it's not a new idea, but the vernacular is quite new, and uh, it appeals to, I think, both traditionalists and uh, new theatergoers, progressive theatergoers as well. And uh, I think the finished product, actually, we've done many different incarnations. The show started at the New York Musical Theater Festival, and then we did a, some development at the O'Neill Center in Connecticut, which is a marvelous, marvelous place. Uh, it was a perfect place for us to actually work on the show because there was very little scrutiny. It was all about support, which is what we needed at that point. We did a brief run at Arsenova. We did. We were part of the Vineyard Theater season two years ago, and then we came back as a commercial production. But in fact, the dream has always been Broadway, and the Broadway production has the fullest arc of material. So I actually feel like now we finally have the completed, the completed show. But when you talk about the arc of the material, the show is self-referential in yes. the sense that it's a show about writing the show you're watching. And as the show has developed, presumably more material keeps being added. I mean, is this a show that can keep writing itself endlessly? Well, in theory, yes. But in fact, it is a traditional book musical, and it will be published as such. 
as a window in time. And uh, what I meant by the fullest arc is that dramatically we had more to gain and more to lose. When the stakes are raised being in a Broadway theater and you're talking about the dream of getting to Broadway, it resonates certainly in a different way than it would if you were sitting off Broadway watching the show being produced there. Um, I created an artificial act break for the Broadway production, which I was never able to do before, based on... There's a section in the middle of the show which at one point was called the Festival Medley, and it was the exploration of everything that happened during that festival initial festival run. In the Broadway production, we've actually collapsed all of the subsequent material and productions into that medley, so now what starts at the festival ends at the very last performance of the Vineyard Theater off-Broadway. It gives us an opportunity to see the characters grow and to grow up, and they have more to lose. And then there was quite a, a long window. It was almost it was over a year and a half before the show finally got picked up to come to Broadway. And um, that's everything that happened during that period of time is also explored in in the text. But in the end, the resolution is the same resolution that we have had for the last couple of productions. It just has a much much deeper resonance now, I believe. And as the director, you are working with the authors who are playing themselves talking about being authors what has been your role in the shaping of the material considering that the guys who wrote it are also speaking it and are the ones on stage and can decide what they want to do yeah it's a it's a very unusual circumstance it's not unprecedented but it is very unusual for the authors to be playing uh themselves essentially in the material i came on board at the very beginning Um, when the guys expressed the concept to me initially, I think they thought it was something that would be a very interesting exercise and that they really, certainly they believed in. But because they were creating it and because they were inside it, I don't think they were able to see as clearly as I was from the outside the potential for this to have very, very strong impact. And in fact, I saw it immediately, the potential for it immediately to grow and grow and grow and in fact to be a Broadway show. Um, to that extent, when they change their hats, it's very hard for authors to keep their authorial perspective when they're actually executing the material. So I have, you know, I've stepped in and helped shaped every aspect of the production, not just physically, but also, you know, if, if things aren't, if the author's intent is not what's resonating from the outside, they can't possibly know that as actors. That's the, you know, that's the difficult part about being an actor even even in a in a remarkable production with a very accomplished director you can never be completely sure of the way that your work is being perceived from the outside have you ever had to, did you ever have to say to the guys at some point i don't care if it really happened it's just not that interesting oh, many times <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, we, we, we use a term, it's sort of borrowed from Linda Barry, uh, called autobiofictionography. It's, uh, it, it's, it's as close as we can come to what this represents. People ask us, certainly all the time, is this 100% true? Um, and the answer is no, of course. It has to be dramatically shaped. But I would say it's a good 75, 80% true. And certainly they're playing themselves, although this is another interesting fact, and this this speaks to my point about it being a more traditional book musical. Many people for Broadway have no idea about the evolution of title of show. They don't know anything about the show before they come to see it. Because only the insiders would That's really right. know that. And there was concern that it would be too insidery, or that the references were so specific to theater, some of them, that other people might feel alienated. And in fact, the opposite has occurred, and, and this has always been my theory. The more specific that you can become in your own personal vernacular or your journey, 
the more ultimately the more universal it has the potential to be because what it does is it captivates someone to to translate for themselves and if you can't relate to exactly what's happening as far as a reference goes what you do see is four best friends talking to each other and what you start to think about is oh well how do we talk when my four best friends are and I are together having a dinner party oh yeah i guess we talk about those things too it starts to become very personalized in a roundabout way. But often people don't read their playbills before the show and they'll come to the stage door afterwards and uh, and they'll be surprised to find out that the actors' names are the same as the characters' names. And then we tell them, and they say, oh, you mean you're actually playing... That's your story? I thought it was just a story that you were telling. They don't even realize that Jeff and Hunter are the authors of the piece, despite the fact that we've spent 90 minutes saying, you know, we are the authors and this is our story. And Jeff and Hunter play Jeff and Hunter, and they Heidi Blickenstaff plays Heidi, and Susan Blackwell plays Susan. Yes. And they were all in the original production off-Broadway. Well, this is a little interesting tidbit. Uh, and, and I have to say, also, Larry Presgrove, our musical director, also plays Larry, the the pianist in the show. Um, the, ve- the original, original production, at the um, when we first started create- creating it, was... Uh, Susan, Jeff Hunter, and Stacia Fernandez. Stacia got a job and got several jobs, actually, and was not able to do the inaugural production at the New York Musical Theater Festival. So Heidi Blickenstaff came in, and Heidi actually played Stacia in the first production at the... And people were confused as to why everyone had their own names except for Heidi, and we had to explain that story. And in fact, it wasn't Heidi's story. There was a line in the show when Susan says, you know, asks the character of Stacia at that point, how do you know Jeff? And she says, oh, we did a production of of Anything Goes in Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin. And that was how Stacia and Jeff met. Well, now, of course, in the Broadway production, Susan asks the same question, and Heidi says, we did that production of Tommy in Brazil together, which is how Heidi and Jeffrey met. Um, so... The first production was a little bit uncomfortable for Heidi because she was the only person who really wasn't playing an alter ego of herself. Now, consequently, the we have altered all the material, so now it reflects Heidi's journey specifically. And then Heidi, between Off-Broadway and now, got another job herself she on did. Broadway. She got a job in The Little Mermaid, and that is explored in title of show on Broadway. Right. Um, it was a big gap between those productions, and no one knew what would happen. We did keep the creative juices going. We managed to, to start an internet web, a web episode series called The Title of Show Show. Um, we started doing these 10-minute webisodes on YouTube because we were primarily because we wanted to stay creative and stay collaborating together, but also because in the back of our minds we knew there was a possibility that would give us a little bit more focus and could possibly inspire a fan base that would justify a, a transfer to Broadway, which is indeed exactly what happened. So it is now essentially the same cast from off-Broadway, the same single piano player on yes. stage, basically the same set, very sparse. Yes. Any temptation to make the show bigger for Broadway to expand either the cast, the staging, or in any other way to, to change it, to make it more a big Broadway show as opposed to the little show that it was at the Vineyard? Yes, and the only temptation that uh, that really resonated with me was uh, I wanted to expand the stakes. I wanted to tell the story better. I wanted it to, to resonate more deeply. And in that respect, it is a bigger show. And I realized that, you know, we the public has no problem paying a certain amount of money to come see a play on Broadway. And it can have one set and a few characters. 
Um, but we have been trained and some some viewers have been trained to believe that uh, if you don't see where the money is going, that it doesn't justify the ticket price. And in fact, my theory is that um, Broadway should be the place where the best stories get told in the best way. And if you can accomplish that, which I feel that we do, that there has never been a single person that's come to see Title of Show on Broadway that has ever questioned the ticket price or has gone back to the box office and requested a refund. It's a very well sto- well-told story, and I believe, in fact, that it translates better on Broadway than it did off-Broadway, despite its size. The silhouette of the characters is actually very, very strong. It's a beautiful theater. The Lyceum is a magnificent, magnificent theater. It's the oldest operating theater on Broadway, and I, I think it's a perfect home for us. It has an intimacy that um, that houses us quite well. Uh, but yes, of course, you know that's that's also explored in the content of the show when you have other people that you're answering to, producers and people that are putting a lot of money into creating a show on Broadway. Everyone has an opinion and there's a f- concern that certain things uh, might generate a backlash um, or criticism. And in fact, I think part of what is so deeply moving about title of show is that it is completely uncompromised and it is the story we want to tell the way that we want to tell it. And whether you, whether it is your um, expectation before you arrive at the theater or not, by the time we get to the end of our story, I think people understand it could not possibly have been told any other way or in a larger, uh, more extravagant way. It just would ca- it would capsize the storytelling. And whether it be theater or film or television, it all comes down to the story. It all comes down to the Absolutely. book. And, and quite frankly, in every artistic medium, I think it's about how how personalized you have the courage to make it, first of all. And, uh, you know, I, I say often one of the things about Title of Show that it, I find interesting is that we live in an age where we're so inundated with the media throws so many ideas and images at us about how we should feel, what, how, what we should eat, the way we should dress, that it's difficult for many people to formulate their own opinions anymore. And I think that uh, one of the things that we offer in Title of Show is a chance to for everyone to reflect upon that and to ask themselves if it really is their opinion or if, in fact, it's something that they have been told. And uh, we have found a way to say what we wanted to say in a way that satisfies us. And uh, I, I find that that's very, very um, encouraging. The wonderful thing about Title of Show is that everyone who sees it walks out of the theater f- really feeling that they can do anything. So tell me, was there ever a point in the development of this show that there was a discussion of whether a character named Michael should get involved? Yes, in fact. <laughs> tell us um, about that. <laughs> well, that was the first decision I made as a director. You know, and I, having been an actor for many years as well, um, I wasn't an idiot. I knew that there was a certain amount... I mean, those the the, the first real musical number in the show after the untitled opening number is called Two Nobodies in New York. So that says where their heads were when they wrote it. And and in fact, they were. And uh, I knew that I had a reputation, so I was able to generate a small degree of press for us initially. I didn't want to capsize the integrity of what they were trying to accomplish. So I said to the guys immediately, I said, no matter where this goes, I don't ever want you to explore the idea of an external hand shaping the production. It pulls the viewer out of those characters and of their journey and their storytelling in a way that makes, I think it it would be distracting to them. And uh, it's proven to be very true. And one of the nicest compliments that I get from people is, is that they they have a sense that the show is sort of self-generated. And uh, I think that 
you know, people that are very educated about the theater certainly understand my hand in shaping the process, but uh, it's nice to me that people don't feel like it's invasive in any way. And we went very quickly by it, but you'd not directed... I mean, this certainly didn't start as a Broadway project. That's right. You, you, it's your, but it is your Broadway directing debut. But how did you get the gig? How did you come to be the director of this through all its incarnations? I told them I was going to direct it. Had they brought it to you? You knew them? Were you I friendly them. beforehand? I, I knew everyone but Heidi before this production. And... Uh, I knew what they were planning on doing. I, as I said, I was in from the very beginning about the process of it. And they were using me as a little bit of a sounding board at the time. They trusted me. And as I said, I was the one who'd been working in the business for 15 years and had a reputation. And they trusted my opinion. Um, but in the end, ultimately, I feel it was because I showed such strong, such a strong opinion immediately that they knew. First of all, it's so personal to them. They needed to have someone they trusted to help shape it, but also uh, artistically and also someone that they trusted emotionally, personally. That's very The most difficult things for the boys to write for this show were the things that were the most emotionally exposed and the most personal because it's not only, you know, as an author, you can write autobiographical pieces that end up being performed by other people and no one really makes such a strong connection to you. Uh, and if they do, they're not watching you tell them your story. So the guys felt very, very exposed. And in fact, there were moments where Hunter, he, he knew emotionally what needed to get said and what he wanted to say, but he literally could not find exactly the right words because it was too dangerous. The risk was too high for him. And that, you know, those moments ended up becoming very, like really imperative because they provide the ballast one of the things about the show that, I mean, it's, I, I talk very seriously, I'm a serious guy, but I, it's also hilariously funny. It's a very, very funny show. And all four of those characters are very, very intelligent, very, very funny people. But I wanted them to see that this was something that could be very inspirational as well. And as I said, I do, we get letters from, and emails and phone calls and, I mean, it's incredible. I've never ever been involved in a project that generated this degree of emotional feedback from people. I just got an email yesterday from a guy who said, you probably don't remember this. He had come to see me in Chorus Line and he stood outside the stage door and we were talking and I, somehow the subject of title of show had come up and it hadn't happened on Broadway yet, but he, I told him that it was a hope and that this is what the show was about. And he said, oh, well, you know, I used to want to be a playwright, but I gave that up and now I want to go to the theater for set, uh, school for set design. And, and I said, well, you know, whatever you do, good luck. We certainly need good set designers in the industry as well. And he wrote me an email yesterday and he said, I came to see the show off Broadway and then I didn't see you, uh, title of show. And he, he said, I didn't see you again. And uh, I started watching the title of show show. I changed my major and I somehow graduated and did a degree in music. And now I'm actually in the, um, I think he's at NYU and he is in the master's program for playwriting. And mm. I, he said, you know, really the turning point for me, the catalyst was that conversation. And, you know, I certainly can't take credit for whatever comes. It was destiny for him, but it was nice to be a pivot point for him in that, in that point in his life and his development. And in fact, it's been that for all of us as well. Well, you are today a director and choreographer. You're an actor. You're a dancer. But many years ago, you were a competitive gymnast I and was. a diver. You know I've been up watching <laughs> Beijing Olympics all night until I'll 5 bet. o'clock in the morning every night. <laughs> I'll bet. So tell us a bit. That was when you were in school, I presume. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, well, I started when I was quite young, actually, seven years old as, uh, as a gymnast and eight as a diver. 
And um, I think it was primarily because I was one of those kids that my mother could not keep off the furniture and climbing trees. And my sister and I both were gymnasts and divers. And um, and I was a musician. I was I started music when I was eight, and those were my major passions. I had no intention of being in the theater in any way, but except I did play Alistair the Mad March Hare when I was in third grade in Mrs. Greer's class, and I must <laughs> say I was I was a big hit. But but you'd wanted to be a classical musician. You I were did a clarinetist, was it? Clarinetist, yeah. And I started playing in pit orchestras. Um, I played in the Allstate Orchestra in high school, and then um, the one of my directors said, "I have these gigs. Would you like to come and you know play a couple of gigs?" And I was playing with her in the pit at sixteen, and uh, this dance company was performing in in my hometown in Joliet, Illinois, where I grew up. And um, on break one day from their rehearsal, I was just sort of hanging out, and I started chatting them up. And then the director came over and asked me if I was, you know, interested in dance. And I said, "Well, no, but I'm a I'm a gymnast." And and she said, "Well, you should come take class with us sometime. I have a 16 year old daughter, and she needs a partner." And mm-hmm. I said, "Oh, okay." So I did, and I became her partner, and that's sort of how I got involved in dance. Um, and because I was an instrumentalist, I could read music. I had never really dared sing, but I when I started to sing, I real I lo and behold found out that I could and um, and the gymnastics of course was a, a, a made it a very easy transition for me into dancing and um, I wanted to be I was just telling this story yesterday in fact I wanted to be an Olympic gymnast it was my goal and I when I was young enough I think I had the talent to do it and I was you know nationally competitive and winning a lot of competitions and 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 uh, suddenly one year I started to grow and that was sort of the end of that dream. And, you know, if, in, amongst other things. But um, it it served me well. I would not be doing what I'm doing right now if it hadn't been for that training. Because when I, I, I tell this story, wherever you are out there, Nikki Todorovic, I haven't... I, I, I hope Nikki Todorovic is listening to this show. <laughs> we all have those people in our lives. She called me, this girl that I had done a little show with in my hometown, she said, a bunch of us are going to Chicago to audition for Disney. We want you to come with us. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, we're auditioning for Disney. And I said, I don't know what that means. She said, they do shows there. And I said, I had no concept. This is at the Disneyland and Disney World? This was uh, Disney in general. They uh-huh. did a big, massive thing. And then for they, all the parks. Yeah, and, and then they place you where yeah. they want you to go. And I said, no, no, I'm not going to go. And she said, we're going to come pick you up. I said, oh, I don't feel well. I got a cold. And you know, she said, we're come pick you up. And she did. And they dragged me out of my house, and there were like seven of us in a minivan. We drove up to Chicago, and we went to the audition. And about seven and a half, eight hours later, um, they offered me a job. And I had no idea what I was doing, but I didn't have I didn't have dance clothes, so I danced in my street clothes. I didn't have shoes, so I danced barefoot. The only song I really knew was Miracle of Miracles from Fiddler on the Roof, because that was the only show I had done in high school. I played Model the Tailor. And I didn't know it was inappropriate to go behind the desk and pull the choreographer out on the floor with you. So I did. And I sang the song to her and I twirled her around. I think they gave me that job because they were just astounded that I had those kind of balls. <laughs> and I really was kind of clueless, but I also clearly had some talent. And I have to say, I was very lost at that point in my life. I, I'm the baby in my family and my parents had divorced and I was, I was sort of floundering a little bit I really was I, I, th- I every time I meet a 16 year old kid I, I just don't know how they can possibly choose what they want to do in the world it's it's a difficult difficult transition to make and if you don't have very very strong guidance at that point in your life it can it very easily despite your talents or whatever your assets are it's very easy for you to derail 
and Disney changed my life. I got the job. I went to California just for a summer, and then they transferred me to Florida, and I was decided not to go to school. I had planned to go to an Ivy League school. I was a very good student and, and you know, had scored exceedingly well on all my scores, my test scores, and and I just wasn't prepared. I didn't have any idea really at that point how to function in, in that scholastic environment. So I decided to wait a year, and I went to Florida, and I worked there. And very quickly I realized that that was what I wanted to do with my life. And I was with like-minded kids. We were all the same age, college age, in fact. And I decided that I would start training privately to get the, the, all the skills that I needed to be able to compete in this business. And, and that's what I did. And that, was my, that ended up becoming my, I call it DU, Disney University, but that was my college experience. Before we move on from that, you just have to tell us, if we were frequenting the Disney parks in this era, what might we have seen you in? <laughs> uh, showbiz is, perhaps. Um, <laughs> to bring it back to Tyler Show for one second, the producer of Tyler Show on Broadway is Kevin McCollum, who is a remarkable producer. He's a he's a very very um, courageous man. He has taken a lot of risks. Clearly, he produced Rent, Avenue Q, um, The Drowsy Chaperone, In the Heights, amongst others. He has a remarkable track record. But his heart, it really is in the industry. I met Kevin McCollum, however, many many years before Title of Show. I would be the boy in yellow in title of show, in uh, showbiz is, and Kevin McCollum was the boy in pink. We met at <laughs> Disney World when I was eighteen and he was twenty-one. Oh, it is a small world it after is. all. <laughs> but I, you know, I have to say, and whenever you know, if we if we get into a situation where either one of us gets too puffed up, it's very easy <laughs> to look at each other and say, "Hey, boy in pink, boy in yellow," <laughs> and it's a great ground wire. It helps us really really remember and how lucky we are to be able to do a, do have this kind of broadway journey at the pinnacle of our profession with someone that we have known since we were kids really and it just gives you such a delicious sense of perspective about about how gratifying this success is so you said you began to get serious yeah. you, know, you wanted to do it how did you make the transition from theme parks to the legitimate stage well it's funny i mean Fiddler on the Roof has been a remarkable thread for me in my life. First of all, it's one of my favorite shows. I think it's a really, really remarkable piece of theater. It was, in fact, the first show I ever did because my mother was playing Yen to the Matchmaker in a junior college production of Fiddler on the Roof when I was a little boy, and she didn't have anyone to sit for us. So my friend and I went, and we they fabricated these two little boy characters to come on stage with Yenta at one point towards the end of the show just so that she could keep an eye on us. Um, but that was the first show I ever saw. And then I got, I did it in high school. I played model. I sang that song I got my to get my job at Disney. And when I was at Disney, a bunch of friends said, hey, <laughs> shades of Nikki Todorovic, um, hey, we're going up to Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera to audition for their summer season. Do you want to come up with us? And, get, and we want to get our equity cards because at the time, Disney was not equity, which it is now. And I said, uh, I was nervous about it, quite frankly, because... You know, I felt very safe and protected at Disney World, and I had been there for a couple of years. But I went, and I sang Miracle of Miracles for my up-tempo, mm -hmm. and, uh, and I got the job there. And I did the summer season, and I did uh, three shows for them. And uh, after I got my equity card, I went back down to Disney, and I choreographed um, a couple of shows for them and a few television things, a parade and that kind of stuff. Um, but I was only there for about another six months because once I had been exposed to legitimate theater and had gotten my equity card, I, I knew that that was really what I was training to do. It's what I wanted to do. 
And I flew to New York and, from Florida and took my very first audition for a Broadway show, which was Fiddler on the Roof. And I went to the audition and naturally I sang the same song. And I may have even told the story at my callback about how that song had favored me in my career. And I got that job. And um, before I ever even moved to New York, we went on tour with that show. And uh, I came back to New York with a Broadway show. That was my, my, when I very first moved to New York, I already knew that I was going to be doing a show. So it was, you know, a luxurious transition for, you know, that's not what happens to most people that come to the city, of course. Um, but it, it was a, it was a beautiful chapter in my life. And Jerome Robbins was still involved. He in, was, at he, that time? he was, and he actually came out when we were in Philadelphia, we were playing the forest and uh, of course, I had never worked with him. I didn't know him, <clears throat> and I was terrified of him coming to see the show. But it was important to him. It was um, one of his favorite shows that he had ever done, and justly so. And he came, and I was—I did. The, I was the lead Cossack dancer in the in scene, though, who crashes into Tevye, and then there's that big moment where the two of them look at each other and they decide to dance together. And Jerome actually—he met with the full company, he watched the show, and then he had notes, and he dismissed the entire company except for myself and Topol, who played Tevye. And he brought us up on stage in a rehearsal, and he said, "This is the most important moment in the show." And he worked on it over and over and over again and it was a very very powerful seed for me because I realized for even for someone like Jerome Robbins the integrity of that movement and the way that dance is uh, sort of an acceleration of the storytelling in musical theater he felt that that was distilling it that to that kernel it was sort of the the center line of the storytelling and I had such great respect for what I did as a dancer forever after that any other projects that I did I I thought deeply about the ways in which the movement was resonating in the storytelling and it has informed me as a director choreographer as well it's um it is one of those things that the musical theater has that other art forms don't when the story just cannot continue to be told without movement or song it expands that emotional arc so so dramatically that I think it's a very very unique experience for the viewer well, you've worked with a lot of uh, named directors and choreographers. I'm just looking at a list. Jerome Robbins, Jerry Zaks, uh, Jack O'Brien, Rob Marshall, Kathleen Marshall. What what have you gained? Michael from- Blakemore. Michael He's Blakemore. Good. And Bart Sher. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I didn't look far enough down the list. Yeah. Bob Avian. Sure. Uh, Bob Avian. Over the first decade or so of your Broadway career, you did a lot of dance roles. I did. Yeah. Uh, what did you learn from these various directors and, and choreographers working with them? Well, as I said, that that moment with Jerome Robbins really changed my life. Uh-huh. And I we, we worked with him for several days, but it, it stayed with me. It has stayed with me to this day. And the projects that I the first three or four, actually probably five Broadway shows I did after that, my primary responsibility was as a dancer. But I went in with a sense of ownership about that. I think that that is the reason that people recognize something in me that they wanted to enhance or encourage because even as I say just as a dancer, but, you know, even just as a dancer in a show, I there was something about my sense of um, confidence and ownership about how of, of the import of my contribution that resonated with people that were working with me. And they started to say, you know, 
do you want to be an actor? And I said, yes. So, um, in fact, I had done the two-year Meisner program down at the Esper Studio here when I was doing Fiddler on the Roof when I first came to the city. And um, I started to understudy, and then I started to take over those roles. But, you know, I I had those couple of years where, for instance, in, in Guys and Dolls, I replaced Scott Wise, and I did that crapshooter specialty dance. And for any of your listeners who saw that production, they know it was it was one of the most exciting dances I've ever seen on stage, let alone been a part of. And it almost (laughs) killed us. (laughs) Chris Chadman, may he rest in peace. It was a it was a remarkably difficult show to dance, but it was absolutely thrilling. I would finish that crapshooter ballet and I could not it's a good thing that the audience went crazy because if they didn't I wouldn't have been able to stand up for a good 10-15 seconds after that number ended with all of the dancers prone on the floor and it's as I said we needed that Um, but it was I I understood how important it was and Chris was one of those people who was a Michael Bennett dancer and had that understanding uh, and Bob Fosse actually I mean he, he was Chris Chadman was Fred Casely, which is the role that I originated in the revival of Chicago. He played that role in the first production. And I think that I've been lucky enough that through my career, I've had these threads to that past, that tradition of, you know, the Bob Fosse's and the Michael Bennett's and the Jerome Robbins, who those strong director choreographers who had respect for each component of what musical theater is and how they all add up to this, you know, the power of the storytelling. Well, you mentioned Fred Casely in uh, in Chicago. You did that. You've done four encores at City Center. I have, and that was one of them. Where you that was, I guess, one of your first major roles as a real character, as opposed to just a dancer. That's true. I had done Forever Plaid off Broadway. Off Broadway. I mean, I'm talking about um, a, sh- a show that ultimately ended on Broadway. Yes, of course, City Center wasn't, but then it transferred to Broadway. Yes, that's true. Um, and I didn't understand. I, I was the only one who had never worked with Bob Fosse of that original ensemble, at least of the men, I know for that for a fact. And I, I was the only one who was asked, I think, to come in an audition with Walter Bobby and Anne Reinking. And I auditioned that Fred Casely part and we did the whole scene where, you know, she shoots me and also the we did a little bit of the trial stuff at the end. And um to this day, one of the loveliest things that's ever been said to me was uh and this was, you know, t- several years later after I had not only done Fred Casely on Broadway, but I had taken over as Billy Flynn, as the lawyer on Broadway, and then gone and done it on tour with Cheetah Rivera. And I was at Annie Ranking's uh, Going Away Tribute Banquet. And she came up to me afterwards and she said, I just want, and with such deep sincerity and simplicity, she said, I just want you to know Bob would have loved you. And I, it meant so much to me to know that. And it's a regret of mine that I never got to meet, let alone work with Bob Fosse or Michael Bennett. But they live in me. I do feel like that, you know, the movement came very easily to me for some reason. And um, that influence had been part of my childhood because I had seen things they had done, you know, uh, on stage, but as well in 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 film, on film, Michael's, I mean, um, Bob's work on on uh, all that jazz in particular was was very instrumental in, in, in my development. Um, yeah, the, but the thing, the funny thing about Forever Plaid being the first real role I had was that I didn't dance at all, and I sang nonstop for 90 minutes, and I didn't know I could do that. And I auditioned for James Raitt, who was the arranger-slash-musical director of that production, and he, uh, well, of that show, and he said to me, you can do this. I know you can. 
and I didn't believe him, but he believed him so deeply that I I said yes to the job. And sure enough, when it came time when it, you know came time to actually do it, I he pushed me outside of my limits. He's another Nikitadorovich in my life. If we don't have those influences that that have that confidence in us before we do, it's very hard to to achieve that. And then years later. He hired me for Damn Yankees, and I understudied Joe Hardy and took over that role briefly as well. And it was another one of those moments in my life where I, he, you know, James is no longer with us either. And and uh, wherever he is, I would love to say another great big thank you to James for being one of those influences in my life that pushed me over a hump I don't know I would have been able to get over on my own. Well, it's interesting. I was going to ask you, and now you've, you've sort of answered it, but... You've gone through so many transitions, gymnast to dancer, dancer to singer, singer, dancer to actor, actor to director, choreographer. How much did you, it seems like you didn't have to convince people that you could do it. People had to convince (laughs) you that you could do it. Uh, Yeah, I would say, I would say there's a lot of truth in that. Um, But it works two ways. You know, I've explored that side of the humps I couldn't get over. But the truth is I pushed very, very hard to break through a lot of glass ceilings. There were as many people as 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 many people as there were that were there and had my back and supported me. There were 10 times that many people who said you can't do it. Can you tell us then how you did that? A couple of examples, perhaps. Well, I grew up in a family that was very, very um, competitive and certainly uh, perfection-oriented. Now, that did not serve me well in many respects. I've had to do a lot of unprogramming to be able to get to the place where I can forgive myself. But on the other hand, it did push me forward in a way where I felt that there... I felt I had a sense of capability. Um, I didn't have a sense of deserving. And that was really the battle for me personally. But when someone would walk up to me and say, you have no business doing that, I instinctively I rail against that and um, it has been it has been difficult um, people in in probably every business I was going to say in, in this business but I think it's probably true for all businesses if you establish yourself in a certain capacity that's where they want you to stay you know it's very easy to get boxed in even as an athlete if you want to change sports or if you want to do dual sports then it's not encouraged because the theory is you can never be the best at anything if you spread yourself too thin. Well, I'm a very complex personality, and most people in show business are. I am an intellectual, but I'm also very silly, and, you know, uh, I'm an athlete as well, but people wanted me to be one thing. They wanted me to be sort of a chorus version of Gene Kelly. When I came to New York, that's what they wanted me to be. They were like, he can tumble, he's athletic, he's masculine, he has a quality about him that feels very old-fashioned. Let's put him in revivals. Let's put him in traditional Broadway revivals where that kind of dancing was really valued. And that's what happened. I ended up doing like six in total I think I've done eight or nine Broadway revivals of, of classic dolls, musicals. Damn Yankees, Carousel, among others. Many. And and I was very happy to do that <clears throat> until I realized that's all anyone wanted me to do. And I started to feel a little trapped. And despite my training in other capacities, I still was having a hard time getting those jobs. Uh, A third character that was one of those influences in my life was Gerald Friedman. And uh, Jerry is 
legendary in this industry. It's interesting because many people may not know who he is, but in fact, he was Jerome's Robin's right hand man on the original production of West Side Story. He is, I think, he's still currently the dean at North Carolina School of the Arts. Um, but he also was the artistic director at the Great Lakes Theater Festival in Cleveland for many years. And he, I went in for an audition. I had to campaign to get an audition, but they needed someone who was a real triple threat to be able to play this part. And I went in to audition for The Dibbuk. And he did, his lifelong dream had been to do a production of The Dibbuk the way he wanted to do it which is a play that was written by Ansky in 1914, I think, dealing with, you know, mysticism and the Kabbalah and pogroms in, in, uh, the, in the Ukraine. And I got the chance to go and expand my horizons, not in New York, but I went to Cleveland. I did this production of this magnificent piece of theater. It was a play, but they also add, he had, had added music. I, he had to have someone who could sing and he had to have someone who could dance. And um, consequently, the, you know, the, the pool got narrowed. And instead of being able to only go to casting directors or agents and say, we need actors for this part, they said, we actually need people that can do everything. And that was the only way that I could get seen for a play. Because the, the competition amongst non-singing, non-dancing actors is so you know, ridiculous in this city that it's impossible to give too many appointments for any specific job. So that was my foray sort of into the into the legitimate theater world and and I you know, started doing plays at Ogunquit Playhouse or in um uh Dennis at the Cape Playhouse in Massachusetts and uh those things ended up bolstering what I understood I was capable of doing and then I came back to New York and said why should it only have to be there? I want to start, you know, doing roles and being a, a legitimate actor here. And I want to be funny, but I also want to be able to be serious. And I want to be sexy, but I also want to be silly. And, you know, it was difficult. People don't know what to do with you if you show them too many colors. And uh, eventually it started to, people started to understand that that was not a risk to see me in a different capacity. And, you know, when it costs $10 million to produce a Broadway musical, most times you're going to want as many guarantees as you can in every capacity, whether it's your director, your choreographer, your actors. You want to use people that have either a reputation already or that are tried and tested in that capacity. It's very, very risky to say we're going to go completely outside of the box and give this person a chance to do something that we've, no one's ever seen them do. Hmm. We well, talk about doing revivals. I'm counting at least nine revivals, including encores, in the yeah. 1990s alone, starting yeah. with that Fiddler on the Roof, your Broadway debut, and then not the least of which was Kiss Me, Kate, yeah. the revival in 1999, a major role for you uh, in, in the role of Bill Calhoun. Yes. Uh, did Kathleen Marshall have anything to do with that? You would work with her earlier. Uh, did, did It's you... an interesting story. Um, the... I had worked with Kathleen when she was assisting Rob on Damn Yankees right. in 1994. And, uh, you know, and I had a great relationship with Kathleen. And I had done the role of Bill Calhoun at Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera. Richard Sabellico had directed that production. And he had also directed The Coconuts, which I did off-Broadway. And he had also directed the major A Majority of One, which I had done. I've done four shows with him. I did Annie with him at Ogunkut as well. And uh, Roger Berlind, who produced the Broadway production of Kiss Me, Kate, saw that production in Pittsburgh and remembered me from that production. And that between those two people, that's what sort of got me in the door for that audition. 
and um and Michael Blakemore, who directed that production, didn't know me from Adam, and that was actually a good thing. He uh, he was working with a completely different pool of people, so it didn't matter to him if you already had a reputation as a leading man in this in the in on Broadway or not. And at that point, I had I had already done Billy Flynn in Chicago, but I had replaced in the role. It wasn't an, I hadn't originated it, so people certainly knew I was capable, but I hadn't been given the shot for myself yet. And that was the first time I really had that opportunity. And not coincidentally, Kathleen is from Pittsburgh. Kathleen is from Pittsburgh. <laughs> now, I recall an amazing number in that show, Bianca, yeah. where you um, the set was three stories high, and you literally climbed the front of the set up and down and around the, all, to, all different ways. Was that your idea to do that? Was that Kathleen's? or how, how did that evolve? Well, as we say in title of show lingo, it's sort of a combo platter. It was... Um, Kathleen, I think she certainly knew I was an uh, an athlete. She uh, Rob um, had choreographed a great deal of gymnastics into the Damn Yankees production, and Scott Wise and I were just tumbling our butts off in that production. We did a lot of craziness, and and she knew that, so she knew I was capable of doing stuff. But Kathleen's not a gymnast, and she didn't understand that world. Um, so we were in the rehearsal process, and she said, "I have this idea that you know you could do something." with the set and you know it's going to be this is what it's going to look like and there's going to be poles and things you can pull yourself up on she's like I don't exactly know how but I think that can happen well of course when you're rehearsing at 890 in a regular rehearsal studio that has a 10 foot ceiling and there's no set in there everyone's you know perfecting all their scenes and they're perfecting all of their songs and we would get to that moment in my number and I'd say I'd just have to stop and I'd say just you know picture it if you will at some point in the near future I'm going to do something spectacular (laughs) but I couldn't actually do it until we got into tech. And, of course, in tech, it's a, a very time-sensitive, and that number only had one evening. And Robin Wagner, genius set designer, um, they had had limitations with what they could put into the theater uh, that the Martin Beck, where, well, now the Hirschfeld, yeah, where the show played. And I had... I had sort of mapped out in my mind how I wanted to do this number based on the sketch, the set design. Well, when we actually got into tech, they had had to alter the set. So nothing was where I thought it was going to be. So I couldn't do anything that I had planned to do. And I got really scared and I got really frustrated because the whole number was built around this magnificent flourish at the end of me climbing this three-story set. And I couldn't do it. And I said to Kathleen and, and to Robin Wagner, I said, I... I, this is what I would like to have happen. Can you do this? I need you to move these cables from these poles and put them on something else. Can you cut out the bottom step of the stairwell and can you solder in a little tiny uh, one-inch thick bar, like a high bar? Can you do this and this and this? Can you reinforce the phone on the wall so that I can jump on that? We went away to dinner break, came back maybe within three hours, I would say. Everything I had asked for had been done. Wow. Everything. Mm. They had steel workers in there, you know, cutting and soldering and filing and sanding. And, and by the end of that night, I had the number and I knew exactly how to do it. And I did everything I was, it was altered from what my original plan was. But in fact, I think it was better than what I had been dreaming of in the first place. And it was one of the most thrilling things I've ever been able to do in the theater. It was it was one of those things that people it had happened. And by the time it was over, people were still sort of staring at me in disbelief that it had just happened. And, and I, yeah, I, I was one of those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you How weren't lying on the floor at the end. <laughs> I, well, I still feel it, I have to say. I can feel it in my lower back some days. And, and, and what, was, what was the reaction of your understudy? 
Did he ever well, have a fill-in for the you? the union, <laughs> the Actors' Equity Union, came to see the show in previews, and they freaked out. Because, I mean, it was exceedingly dangerous. At one point, I was hanging from just my feet from the top rail. Mm. But I had threaded my legs through, so I knew I was secure. But, you know, anyone watching it couldn't have known that. I let go with my hands and sort of lifted my back up and stared at the audience. And there was always a crazy gasp every night. And the union came to me, and they just... Well, their concern was that I had been coerced into doing it somehow. <laughs> and I said, no, actually, you know, it was largely uh, my idea, the specifics of it. And she said, we can't have you do it. And they actually made me prove to them that I could do the entire number backwards from the top, from the exit. I did the ho- the whole thing in reverse all the way down to the floor so that they could if for for any reason if if the set should malfunction if there was something went wrong i could prove to them that i would be safe and they wrote a disclaimer in my writer in my contract that said i was the only one who was allowed to do that particular choreography Mm -hmm. that eventually changed um david elder replaced me on broadway and and uh which was sort of a turnabout because he had done the same role i did in in guys and dolls years earlier and he did the same choreography even around the time that you were becoming involved with title of show, you were also involved with The Light in the Piazza. Now, that had several out-of-town incarnations. When did you come to it? I didn't actually know anything about The Light in the Piazza until it, I went into audition for it on Broadway. <clears throat> I was totally unaware of those other productions. I had been very busy doing other projects of my own, um, and I had been in London doing Kiss Me Kate for a year so I I wasn't aware of the the show, and in fact I did, I did a thing with Martha Clark downtown. I did two workshops. Martha's a, an incredibly talented. I wouldn't say she's avant garde, but she uses dance. She's another one of those people that uses dance as the primary force the in storytelling. Delights, exactly. Loose House. That's right. A few other, pro- yeah. And she was a founding member of Palavolis initially. That was her. That was her primary sort of. Um, influence for many years anyway she's done remarkable work it's all it's all dance heavy storytelling and non-traditional for sure and i had done this thing where she was working on this project about um sicily sicily in the turn of the century and um she did it as a uh a conglomeration of three different uh pirandello stories the Taviani brothers had done a film called Chaos in the 60s, and it was loosely based on that. It was a stage production. But I spoke only peasant Sicilian in that production. And we actually had someone who... Because it's, it's almost completely dead now. That language is almost totally gone. And there are a couple scholars that came in and spoke with us about that dialect. And, and um, I believe... I could be telling a lie, but this is how I'm going to tell the story, Ira. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Ira Weitzman from Lincoln Center saw one of those workshop um, presentations and did not know that I did not speak Italian. But because I only spoke Italian in that production, I think that's how I got the audition for The Light in the Piazza because the character I played in The Light in the Piazza also never spoke English. He only spoke Italian in the, in the, sh- in the show. And you told us before we got on the air, people just assume you're Italian when in fact... They do. They look French. at my name and they see, you know, my, my name is pronounced Barres, but they see it and it has that vowel on the end <laughs> and they just want to say, you know, Bereze. <laughs> and, uh, and I let them because I call myself sort of pan-ethnic. I've played, you know, Jews and Greeks and, and, and Italians and I, I sort of, anything that's sort of vaguely Mediterranean, I can pretty much <laughs> uh, accomplish. 
So uh, yeah, so that uh, that's what got me in the door for that, and it was a uh, initially it was sort of a a small role, but I had such a strong, strong sense about the score and about the story. I was com- so compelled just reading it. I hadn't even heard it yet. I had heard uh, some some a demo CD of a few of the songs. And um, I was determined to go in, and I actually sang a Sicilian lullaby for my audition. Not for it. Miracle of Miracles. Not Miracle of Miracles. <laughs> and it was from that was one of the songs from that uh, Pirandello project that I I sang for that audition. And um, I had never met Adam Gettle, had never met Bartlett Shure, and uh, that was one of my favorite experiences I've ever had in the theater. Was the Light in the Piazza? It was a beautiful, beautiful production. I'm very proud to be a part of that. Do you speak any Italian? Uh, well, I started studying Italian after I did the show. Okay. I hired a tutor, and I went in and did uh, one full session with him, and I'm going to go back this year and uh, start again because it comes very easily to me, and I certainly understand a great deal. And I, I started to ad-lib a few things in rehearsal for Light in the Piazza and uh, in Italian because I wanted to help sort of flesh out the emotional journey of or just the atmosphere of what it was. It was very it was very important for all the creators to have a sense that there was a a legitimate sense of Italy, not just a show business Broadway version of Italy. So I, with their encouragement, started to to create some ad living material, some of which actually ended up in in the production I scripted. Um, but it really got me curious, so mm-hmm. I started to study. So yes, that's one of my goals is to learn to speak Italian. Then, of course, following uh, The Light in the Piazza, your next role, you spent a good deal of the role in the audience. I did, uh, on a in, microphone. As, as, as <laughs> Zach in a chorus line. Yep. That, yeah, yeah. How, how did you get into that? How did that come about? Um, I, th- think, I think Bob Avian actually came and saw The Light in the Piazza. Mm-hmm. And that character in The Light in the Piazza was, on the surface, was... Uh, such a good for nothing you know he's a kind of a slacker and cheats on his wife and a little bit of a a ladies man and kind of a gigolo and and i saw in him believe it or not a really really lovable guy i just saw something in that character that you know my theory is for life in general but also for all the roles i've ever played no matter how they look on paper that they're three-dimensional. I mean, life is not one-dimensional, and people are not one-dimensional. And you can be the most violent character you've ever played, and there can be a shadow of humility or of humor, and I think it provides some balance. And I, I, I treat my actors the same way as a director. I encourage them to explore all facets of their characterizations. And I think that that resonated with Bob. He saw something I had done that was unexpected at that char- with that character, and... Um, and I approached Zach the same way. I mean, it took it took a while for me to find that character. That was a very difficult journey for me. But when I finally did learn how to play that character the way that I really wanted to, I I loved it because he is um, he is also very complex. And I was able to generate, I think, something a little more three dimensional than people were accustomed to seeing with the role. Well, it's interesting you say that because one of the things that was bandied about when that production began was how much of it was a slavish recreation of what people remembered from the original and how much of it was new. How much freedom did you have and how much did freedom did the whole cast have? Well, uh, to be honest, not a great deal. And not because it w- we were told that wasn't okay. Um, but because of several reasons, if you're going to do a recreation, you're going to do a recreation. 
that that choreography and that staging is so ingenious and it is it's it's remarkable it revolutionized the art form when that show opened i wasn't here of course at the time and i never saw i moved, i never saw the broadway production while it was still running because i think i came in just as it was closing with my first show and uh you know out of respect to michael bennett and the staging there certainly were many many restrictions in that respect um but also i feel it's uh it was difficult it was difficult to find the right balance and that's why i say it took a while for me to find the character initially i w- i tried to veer away from what, what had been done more traditionally and I could not find the right balance. I couldn't find a way to maintain the integrity of all aspects of the production. So in some respects, I went too far initially, and then I pulled back. But in other ways, the ways in which I went too far pulled back. But there were there when I when I finally found the right balance, as far as the staging and the characterization went, I found in the back third of the show that there was much more room for a human development for me. So it was sort of a it was a little bit of a yo-yo for me and for all of us i think you know we we didn't we wanted to have freedom but at the same time you felt a certain degree of responsibility and limitation well now that you're a director and a choreographer you're an actor what are we going to see you doing next acting directing choreography all of the above that's the goal uh i i have always wanted to be a director and i have always wanted to be an actor since i started working and i see no reason to eliminate either one from from my future it's difficult Traditionally, many, many um, director choreographers who started as actors find it very difficult to maintain a career on stage once that ball really gets rolling. And um, it's a different world now. But I also spent more years as an actor before I started directing than most of them did. Consequently, I have a stronger base as an actor, I think. You know, I have a stronger reputation, and I also have a greater passion for it than I think they, once they started to direct the Bob Fosses and Michael Bennett's, they knew they didn't want to go back. Um, but I'm also expanding more into film and television. Um, theater will always be my first love, and I will always maintain that profession. But um, in fact, I shot. I just finished shooting a film called State of Play with Russell Crowe and Helen Mirren and Ben Affleck, and a remarkable cast of characters, and I play a very very dark character darker than any character i've ever played before which was a really exciting challenge for me and that uh, film comes out in the new year and i'm looking forward to doing more work like that but um but i will always make i'd say the 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 priority for me is going to be able to find the right balance between directing choreographing on broadway and performing on broadway we certainly look forward to seeing you either on stage or backstage directing. Michael, thanks so much for being with us Thank today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.